Hi, and welcome to On the Nose, the podcast of Jewish Currents. I'm Nora Kaplan-Bricker, the executive editor of Jewish Currents, and I'll be hosting today, standing in for editor-in-chief Ariel Angel. Today, we'll be talking about an article by my colleague, Jewish Currents news editor, Aparna Gopalan, titled, The Hindu Nationalists Using the Pro-Israel Playbook. Aparna spent months investigating the relationships between right-wing Hindu organizations in the U.S. and the American Jewish establishment. These communities have worked together for decades, lobbying for shared defense goals in Washington and pursuing a joint geopolitical vision. More recently, Hindu American groups have started adapting the famed Hasbara tactics that Jewish groups have used to shape the narrative about Israel and fend off criticism of its human rights abuses. They've employed similar strategies to shield an increasingly ethno-nationalist India from scrutiny. At the center of this new strategy is an effort to promulgate a concept of, quote-unquote, Hindu-phobia that's closely modeled on pro-Israel groups' preferred definition of anti-Semitism. Joining me to talk about all of this is my colleague, Jewish Currents news editor, Aparna Gopalan, and Azad Issa, a senior reporter for Middle East Eye and the author of the new book, Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Nora. Thanks, Nora. Happy to be here. So to start, I want to ask, what is this Hindu phobia strategy that Hindu American organizations have been developing? When something happens that brings India under scrutiny for human rights violations, Hindu phobia is the allegation that comes in to change the conversation. So the piece opens with this parade that happens in New Jersey, which is like the Indian Independence Day parade. The parade was taken over by Hindu nationalists. They had their own guests attending from the Hindu paramilitary group, the RSS. There was spokespeople of Modi's BJP party. And most notably, the parade had a bulldozer among its different floats, which was a very jarring symbol for Indian Muslims to look at because Modi has been using bulldozers in India to demolish Muslim homes and storefronts and, and just as a symbol of you know Hindu supremacy. And so there was a lot of criticism that the parade drew initially. And New Jersey politicians kind of came out and said this is Islamophobic. But very quickly, Hindu groups changed the conversation. They said criticism of the parade is Hindu-phobic. So they released a letter, which was signed by 60 Hindu groups and a lot of them Hindu nationalist groups, basically talking about anti-Hindu bias and about Hindus as a minority community under threat in America and how criticizing this parade is basically going after the entire Hindu American community. And that's just one example of so many instances in which this strategy is used. So when there's resolutions in US Congress, which are looking to condemn India's human rights violations, those resolutions are then cast as Hindu-phobic and, and then they don't pass. Or when Joe Biden appointed an advisor who was a Hindu nationalist, there was criticisms of that appointment and then those criticisms were called Hindu-phobic. Most interestingly in reporting the piece, I found that criticism of Hindu-phobia is increasingly being used against South Asian people. So, for example, the, the, the most kind of famous Hindu-phobic incidents that every single Hindu nationalist group I talked to mentioned was what they call the Taco Bell incident, where there is a Hindu man who goes to a Taco Bell, and then there's a Sikh man who is there, and he, he hurls abuses at the Hindu man, you know, in, in what's very clearly religious bigotry or racism, but he also has criticisms of India as like a colonial project. And those two things are conflated in calling it Hindu-phobia. And so this instance is like a famous Hindu-phobic instance now. And, and similarly, when people in the U.S. vandalize statues of Gandhi, 
who is a symbol of oppression for many Indian minorities, especially caste minorities, that is also now called Hindophobic. So you basically, if you're South Asian and if you're a minority, you just can't criticize anything about India because you become Hindophobic. So that's kind of what it's doing. The strategy is conflating Hinduism with Hindutva, which is the kind of far-right Hindu supremacist ideology. It makes the two things be one. In fact, on the website of the Hindu American Foundation, there's all these examples of Hindophobia, and it includes everything from dot head, which is obviously a slur, to, you know, criticizing Modi as fascist. Those are equally Hinduphobic. And so in here, you can start seeing, obviously, the parallels between Hinduphobia and the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which conflates criticisms of Israel with anti-Jewish bigotry. Hinduphobia is very consciously modeled on IRA. Hindu nationalist groups literally told me that we are modeling it on anti-Semitism and we're watching how that's playing out and how successful it is. And we want to make it just like that. I'd like to rewind now and talk a little bit about the history of this collaboration between the Jewish establishment in the U.S. and these Hindu right groups. Azad, you have a really helpful quote in your book where you're riffing on some writing by the scholar of South Asian history, Vijay Prashad, and you say, as Jews had become white folks in the 1960s, Hindus became Jews in the latter half of the 20th century. I think this is a really useful frame, and I'd love to talk a little bit about how did this collaboration, this relationship, and even this kind of modeling of Hindu diaspora politics on Jewish diaspora politics take root and how did it evolve over the later decades of the 20th century? And in particular, how did this kind of accelerate after 9-11 and what role did Islamophobia in particular play in kind of cementing these communities together? So I think for this, we need to start off in the early 90s. By early 1990, you have these three movements that come together. You have this affluent Indian American community who have been in the country for about 20 or 30 years who have now become a lot more settled. Their organizations are a lot more developed. They want to have more kind of influence in the U.S. And they see this Hindu nationalist movement sweeping across the country. And they also see it linked to the country's change to a liberal market economy. And they want to get in on the act, essentially. So they start investing money into India and and into those organizations. And... At the same time, the Indian government, the Congress party, is told that if you want to get close to the U.S. and you want to join the global economy, you've got to be closer to Israel. So you have these three streams that come together because each side has a stake in this. Hindu nationalists want Israel to be closer to India. They want this market economy to be implemented. And they want more influence in the U.S., And so in the early 90s, these organizations start working with these pro-Israel organizations, and they are the ones that essentially teach them how to lobby, teach them how to raise funds, how to create a PAC, build up internship programs on Capitol Hill. So they create that access. So Israel and India normalized highs in the 90s, and by the 2000s, the arms deals start improving in terms of size to around 20 or 25%, as you rightly say. In the early 2000s, you have 9-11 that takes place. And this allows these organizations to essentially adopt a kind of civilizational rhetoric to their economic and political argument, right, and political alliance. So now they both say that we are working against these terrorists, you know, these Muslim terrorists. So 9-11 becomes the excuse for many militaries around the world 
to essentially bulk up. And India is no different. And India also bulks up on the legal front with regards to passing off sort of like Patriot Act type legislation in India itself, in which it gives the, the government far-reaching powers to surveil, to arrest, to hold people on any kind of charge that links up to this, this war on terror. So the relationship builds through the 2000s. And that's when you have Ariel Sharon also traveling to India as well. And you see this increasing talk of these two civilizations battling it out. It's under the, the Congress party that this relationship really accelerates between 2000 and 2010, of which the Congress party was in charge for about six years. India purchased around $10 billion worth of arms. And then another significant thing happens around 2008. This attack takes place in Mumbai and several Israelis are killed in this attack. And that attack is called India's 9-11. And so it kind of tethers Israel to India's biggest terror attack. Till today, that attack is seen as like attack on both of us. And so as a result, India is allowed to kind of accelerate the technology sharing that takes place between India and Israel. And so India starts sending police officers to Israel to learn about counterterrorism tactics. Netanyahu and Modi become really close after 2014. And this also accelerates what Aparna is talking about in terms of the Hindophobia, in terms of as India and Israel become closer, we're not just talking about them working together in terms of lobbying, but pretty much imbibing all of the tactics of the Zionist lobby, creating blacklists, attacking curriculums, creating the kind of structure in which you aren't able to speak about India without being labeled Hindophobic. I think I'll just echo one thing Azad said, which is, this talk of the civilizational relationship is just very much with us still. So there's this one event between the Zionist group Stand With Us and the Hindu Nationalist group Hindu American Foundation. And the event was to compare Hinduphobia and anti-Semitism. That was the whole point. And it was a three-part series and hours and hours of webinars. And so in the first webinar, the entire thing for like an hour and a half was just about the civilizational similarities between India and Israel. We both celebrate religious holidays. Like, yeah, everyone does that. But this is just this real effort to kind of code this like Islamophobic affinity into something much more ancient, much more primordial, and much more legitimate. Every commonality that they are able to assert is then turned around and used to smear the critics. That's like the ultimate goal of all this. Obviously, we just saw India's Prime Minister Modi just visited the US and had this kind of incredible red carpet rollout that both of you wrote about at the time. This kind of treatment that's reserved for the US's closest allies was kind of like feted in both New York and Washington. And of course, Modi has also visited Israel and been literally and figuratively embraced by Benjamin Netanyahu. And those images have been captured in the press and celebrated, certainly by the pro-Israel lobby, which also loves to kind of write op-eds about this trilateral alliance as partly kind of a success of their own lobbying and organizing. So I would love to just talk a little bit about what's the current state of this kind of geopolitical alliance and how is it kind of shaping geopolitics more broadly in this moment? So as India's relationship with Israel developed and strengthened, India's relationship with the U.S. obviously improved as well. And the U.S. began seeing India as a partner, not exactly an ally, 
but a partner. In other words, Israel uses India to expand its market and sell its weapons and earn legitimacy in the third world. India uses Israel to expand its weapons arsenal, borrow its technology and methods, and earn trust in the West. And what happens now in terms of the the current context is that the, the U.S. is kind of convinced that India is an immense partner in the economic war against China, and it sees India as kind of like a pool of limitless labor and as a capitalist partner, as also a kind of an interlocutor with the third world. It sees India as kind of like a tech and labor partner, and even as an ideological ally. And we know that Indian people have a huge affinity for the U.S. So it's an extremely transactional relationship, but it's a relationship that the U.S. in particular is seeing for the medium to long term. So we've talked a fair bit about how this whole strategy of calling any criticism of India, of Hindutva, Hindu-phobic works to kind of camouflage or legitimize Islamophobic politics. But Aparna, in your piece, you also wrote pretty extensively about how these same strategies are leveraged against caste-oppressed people, both in the South Asian diaspora and in India. The groups that you wrote about have been very active in going after activists who oppose the caste system and Dalit activists, Dalits being people from the lowest stratum of the caste system, caste oppressed people. For example, in the US, we've recently seen some legislation banning discrimination on the basis of caste after a series of findings that caste still really actively impacts the lives of South Asian people in the US. For example, underlying discriminatory hiring practices in Silicon Valley And when these ordinances or bills that ban caste discrimination have come up at the city level or the state level, we've often seen these Hindu nationalist American groups mobilize really, really fiercely against that legislation by calling it an existential threat to their safety, claiming that it's going to take away their livelihoods, it's going to make it impossible for them to drive in a certain place or enter a certain city because their lives will be in danger. So how does caste fit into the larger Hindutva project? And how does anti-caste kind of political consciousness perhaps threaten that project? And what is the narrative that these right-wing Hindu American groups are promulgating when they make these really, really extreme claims about how anti-caste legislation threatens their lives and well-being? I think one thing, it's kind of obvious in a certain way that this is an upper caste movement, so they are just invested in their own power. But I think there's another level on which anti-caste movements are actually threatening the very foundation of Hindutva, very much like actually Israeli Zionism. Indian Hindutva is based on like a claim of numerical supremacy, basically, like there's many more of us, right? And so this is our land. But actually, if there's significant anti-caste activism coming from every caste stratum underneath the kind of top one, then Hindus are no longer a majority. You know, if those folks say we're not Hindu anymore, if they're like not just the Dalits, but the Bahujans and kind of all the other like people who are not at the top of the caste hierarchy, if they all basically disavow Hinduism, Hindutva has no foundation anymore. And so it's really an existential threat in that sense to not to Hindus, but to the project of Hindu supremacy. Their demographic conceit is no longer operative. So that's the context in which we have to understand the like hysterical anxiety. And it really is hysterical. One of the interviews I did with a Hindu right group, it was right after Seattle banned caste discrimination. I asked them, what do you think of Seattle? One of them said, I I don't want to drive into Seattle anymore. I'm so anxious. And then the other one said, 
now the Dalits can come after us. If they like don't get a job that they applied for, they're going to come after us now. They said to me, if you go out on a date with someone and they're Dalit and it didn't go well and you don't go on a second date, now they can come after you for that. So it's just like a level of hysteria. And so what are they doing with it is they want to ban mentions of caste in textbooks in the US. So in the US, when India is taught, like this very brief, like, 10 sentences about India and one of the words in those 10 sentences is caste and they don't want that word there. They don't want any laws or any policies at workplaces or universities that mention caste because they say even the mention of caste is Hindu-phobic. To even say that word is Hindu-phobic. Even if many of these laws actually explicitly say caste is not a Hindu thing, the Hindu right doesn't believe that and they just kind of insist that you can't mention it. So it's really an effort to completely erase caste, which is really the only way that they're project makes any sense. Yeah, it kind of shows how deeply entrenched Hindutva is in the diaspora as well. When you look at the Carnegie study, for instance, that came out in 2020 or 2021, you find that there are so many Indian Americans who are Modi supporters, right? And caste, to a large extent, is kind of like the elephant in the room. They aren't able to talk about it. And when these matters come up, it becomes very, very awkward and also very, very uncomfortable. And I think we're going to see more of that in the coming years. I want to just sort of stay with this question about, as Aparna put it, the hysteria that we see when these issues come up. Another person Aparna spoke with for this story, the scholar Shana Sippy calls this an affective politics of fear, which I think is a really useful way of thinking about what this is doing. And I just kind of wanted to pause on this and ask you both if you have additional thoughts about kind of the significance of the kind of tonal valence of this narrative or how that makes these politics even more effective or or perhaps kind of harder to counteract. I mean, this politics of fear, I think, felt really familiar to me because we sometimes see versions of this in the Jewish community as well, that if you criticize Israel or you threaten Israel's existence as a kind of Jewish supremacist project, then you're taking away the security for Jews globally, and even Jews living in the US, in many cases feel that that's in some way an existential threat to them, that they they need that homeland as almost like an insurance policy for Jewish safety or something. One thing about the politics of fear, and this is actually, to me also, working at Jewish Currents are very familiar, is, for example, when there's an anti-Semitic attack, right? As soon as the attack happens, obviously, it shouldn't have happened. And it is anti-Semitic, and you want to kind of say that. And at the same time, the way that it becomes framed immediately puts progressives on the back foot because you don't want to join the chorus, right? So I feel like there is a small amount of that happening with Hindu phobia in that there are actually racist attacks against Indian people in the US. And I mean, I don't think they're so targeted that someone's sitting in their house and planning who the Hindus are in the neighborhood, but they do sometimes target Hindus. And so that is bad and shouldn't happen. But the way that it gets framed in the media or by these Hindu right groups is asserting a structural equivalence between what's happening to Hindus and what's happening to these other groups when there's actually not an equivalence. The numbers bear this out in that the Hindu right lobbied to get the FBI to measure anti-Hindu hate crimes separately from every other type of anti-Indian or other hate crimes because they wanted to have some data to prove that there is Hindu phobia. And they completely failed because the data, what it shows is that Hindus are 
out of 35 religious groups in the U.S., least likely to be like subject to hate crimes. Only Jehovah's Witnesses are under that. Muslims are eight times more likely to experience hate crimes than Hindus are. Jews are 12 times more likely and Sikhs are 128 times more likely. This is from Hindus for Human Rights, which is a progressive Hindu group. So there's a need for the hysteria because the data doesn't actually bear it out. And then the second part of it is actually the hysteria. So every Hindu rights source I talk to brought up the Nazis and said, that's what's going to happen to us as Hindus. And they basically had this image of the ticking clock. And they were like, we need to do something because it took the Nazis a decade to do what they did. And that decade for us Hindus is right now. So we need to act right now. Otherwise, there's going to be a genocide against us. And it's very effective because even people who are not Modi supporters, but are Hindus in the US have experienced some racism. And so when someone says, you know, something's really bad is going to happen, this is going to get much worse they get afraid and then they start start listening to these groups. And then before you know it, they're talking to the Hindu American Foundation because that's who is kind of generating this fear. It's very similar to one of my sources talked about how the ADL will kind of email your grandmother every time there's an anti-Semitic attack and basically be like, this is the Holocaust again, like give us money. And that is like very similar to what these groups are doing. They're really just copying and pasting that narrative. And it's it's very scary and very effective. I think we have to pin it down to a kind of deliberate strategy of misinformation. It's an attempt to kind of derail. And we also got to consider who these groups are working with. You know, we're talking about Jihad Watch and Middle East Forum, these majorly funded right-wing organizations that have for decades seen how anti-Semitism can be sort of like weaponized. So Aparna, in your piece, in addition to reporting on these kind of right-wing collaborations between Hindu nationalist groups and the American Jewish establishment in the U.S., you also learned that there's kind of a mirror image process of learning and working together that's happening on the left, that in the kind of world of progressive organizing, the organizations that have grown up and are trying to create a kind of anti-Hindutva consensus in the U.S., or at least sort of work toward an anti-Hindutva political consciousness existing at all, are also learning from anti-Zionist groups, much as the kind of groups that they're pushing against are learning from Zionist organizations and pro-Israel lobbying groups. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that collaboration. Yeah, that's a great question. It turns out that one of the very few Hindu groups that is anti-Hindutva, and that's like their whole goal and rationale for existence is to be anti-Hindutva, is Hindus for Human Rights, which was founded in 2019. And Hindus for Human Rights was explicitly founded as a mirror image of Jewish Voice for Peace, which is an anti-occupation group that has been kind of doing anti-Zionist activism for a really long time. And the way that that process went is basically one of the people who founded Hindus for Human Rights, Sunita Vishwanath, her partner is a Jewish Voice for Peace activist. And so basically Sunita was like, what is the model that I can follow to like create a group like this? And, and didn't have to kind of look very far. Jewish Voice for Peace has run trainings, runs retreats, has talked about strategy, provided all these kinds of informal support. And I think it's so crucial that this partnership exists on the left because there's certain things that become possible. For example, Hindus for Human Rights is now able to do things like try to reclaim something about Hinduism that isn't Hindutva, like people who are attached to being Hindus, you know, who don't want to abandon the religion and culture that they're coming from, you can still go to temple, you can still be a Hindu while not being 
uh, Hindu nationalists. So I think that that space opening up is very reminiscent of what I've seen Jewish currents doing, like creating a way to be Jewish that is not about being pro-Israel. So that collaboration is just super critical because it's not just two parallel systems, it's one system. Yeah, I think this collaboration is extremely important because if these oppressors are going to work with each other, then there has to be a coordinated response. Anything else is going to be counterproductive. I would say that there are several differences between the anti-Hindutva lobby with the anti-Zionist lobby. So, for instance, from what I've understood from my reporting on this topic as well, you know, many Indian Americans, they see India as home and they want to return. And when it comes to many anti-Zionist Jews, they understand that Israel is not home or, or they at least they are willing to forego it. And when it comes to Indian Americans and Hindu Americans, there's a struggle there for many of them. right? And there's, this means that the Indian authorities are able to leverage this. Secondly, you know, anti-Zionism has a longer, a much longer tradition. We are only at the beginning of this anti-Hindutva story, right? And I don't think, all good intentions aside, you can't just take an organization and then just like replicate it. Like it, it requires a lot of work. And I'm not saying they're not doing it, but I think we need to be careful also about overstating the collaborations because they're still trying to work it out. So for instance, are Hindus for Human Rights trying to save democracy? What do they do with caste? especially in a context in which there are so many upper caste Hindus in the U.S., working in tech, working in the media, in business, in politics, meaning that all of this is going to be extremely hard to dislodge because they are beneficiaries of this privilege. And if Modi goes tomorrow, what does that mean for caste-oppressed people in India? What does it mean for Kashmiris? What does it mean for all of the other things that are completely linked with this authoritarian capitalism that's unfolding in India? Because that's what it ultimately is also. And that's what also Israel is about as well. It's about creating these spaces for these billionaires to run riot, right? And one of the other things is that, Aparna, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if you are seeing working class Hindus speaking up about this matter. So it's also a class issue here. Whereas, you know, with anti-Zionist Jews, they are working class people speaking up, which means that they can connect with other issues and they can connect with farm issues and labor issues. And, you know, and they can create a, a larger broad-based movement. Whereas when it comes to fighting Hindutva in the Indian community, it's very much like a, a kind of liberal project still. So I'm not trying to put a spoke in the wheels here. I'm not saying that people aren't trying. Hindus human rights are doing very important work because they're also amplifying some of the things that Indian Muslims can't say out loud in the U.S. because they'll be in deep trouble, right? But I think some of these conversations aren't moving also in the public space, and I believe that they have to. Otherwise, you're not really going to build a movement that's going to surpass just the question of Modi. I think that's exactly right about the class issue. And again, Hindus for Human Rights does great work. And, and I, I think they're very necessary in like enabling my parents to remain Hindus, but not become pro-Modi. But there is a liberalism that runs through the Indian left and the Indian American left. It was very clear during the Modi visit, for example, where there was tons and tons of criticism about the human rights record, right, which which is bad and, and should be criticized. But it almost felt like if Modi had been Manmohan Singh, who was prime minister before him, who was also buying weapons from the U.S., it would have not been such a big problem because the human rights violations were not so front and center. And that's a limitation, right? Because Manmohan Singh was also crushing labor, was also arresting Muslims, was also doing counterterrorism in Kashmir. And so there is something that's really absent. And I do think that the Jewish left 
is a left. And I think the Indian left is maybe not so much a left. It's just not a right. And that remains to be seen kind of how sufficient that is. And I think maybe maybe one of the hopes is, is not just Hindu groups, but Dalit groups in the US who are trying to do stuff around caste protections, which I think straddles the line between liberal and leftist, because some of these caste protections actually affect livelihoods. And like, if you really truly are able to ban caste discrimination in the city of Seattle, it's going to affect restaurant workers, it's going to affect construction workers, it's going to affect temple workers. And I think that's not how it's being implemented right now, because there's not like the ground game to like implement the law in restaurants and temples and construction sites. But those Dalit minority efforts in the US are maybe a starting point for building some kind of working class base. One of the things I wanted to say is that, of course, Hinduphobia is used to conflate criticism of Hindutva and Indian policies with hatred of Hindus, right? But part of this effort to confuse things is to also bring in the question of development and governance, meaning that, you know, Modi's government is about trying to improve governance in India, trying to improve the rule of law in India. And so you have a lot of people within the Indian American community that because of their class status, right, they're not working class and they're not part of any other kind of larger struggles. If they are told immediately that this is a governance issue, they might believe that. And then when you add Hindu phobia to it after that, then it becomes this case where you are easily able to persuade people who don't understand their privilege to some extent also to believe that all this criticism about Modi is about jealousy. It's about India becoming powerful and now we want to drag them down. So I feel as if just as Israel talks about their security all the time, India uses development as its first port of call in trying to defend the country. And, and that also speaks to a kind of very Orientalist as well as Islamophobic idea of Muslims in India being backward and being dirty and, you know, being lawless, you know, and we need to clean it up. So there's a lot going on there. That has me thinking about some of the ways that I think in this moment in the Jewish community in the U.S. and, and globally, we're kind of at this unclear crossroads where there's a sort of new upsurge, certainly in the U.S., of, of discomfort in the kind of liberal Jewish community around what's going on in Israel-Palestine and about, you know, the current Israeli government and the kind of open authoritarianism there. But there's a question of like, is this a rupture? Is this something new? Or is this a continuation, which is much more the analysis on the left for the most part, that this is a continuation of a long settler colonial trajectory that's been ongoing for decades. And so I think some of these questions about like, is this a liberal critique that can be satisfied by the maintenance of certain democratic institutions? Or is this a critique that kind of gets deeper into the colonial ground of a, of a political project or a state formation, as much as I also think it's valuable that we're talking here about some of the limitations of the comparative frame or the need to hold a lot of the nuance around what's different. I also am kind of continually reminded in this conversation about the value of being in conversation or of doing the comparative work. I think the last question that I wanted to close on here, we may have anticipated, but I think one clear takeaway here is that if you make a really effective playbook that makes kind of right-wing authoritarianism and ethno-nationalism possible or palatable, that other people are going to be able to use that playbook for their ethno-nationalist project also, that you can't confine that to one lane. But I just wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, as you both look ahead, how does the sort of transposability of these strategies, maybe even beyond these two contexts that we've been discussing, affect your thinking about how we contend with them or 
even affect your thinking about how you work as people kind of chronicling these movements and struggles? I think we are all trying to figure this out right now. The important thing for me is that we don't need to necessarily think of people using entire tactics from another place. They draw what they like from those places or from those models, you know, whether it is a law, whether it is a kind of utilization of mobs and vigilantes, which, you know, you see what's happening in the West Bank right now with the settlers. Similar things are taking place in India when it comes to how they're going through Muslim areas, right? So, like, it's not the same thing, but they are similar kinds of methods. Now, with regards to, you know, the implication for all of us, I think this Hindophobia label is something that we have to track and watch very carefully because that is going to be one of the things that's going to be used against journalists like, like ourselves and politicians or activists in trying to demonize them with regards to jobs, to travel, with regards to uh, access to things, which is what the IHRA definition also tries to do, right? And so there's a clear replication there. Right now, actually, just like, you know, a half hour ago, there was an article in Op India about my article calling me, you, Audrey Trushke, Rakib Naik, everybody's Hindophobic. And I've seen that before. I started out in college as a Palestine solidarity organizer. And, and this is what was happening then, you know, 10 years ago. And so it's being transposed. Like when a critical article comes out, you need to put out your own article, like the next day, going after every single person mentioned. And then what happens is that because there's an article, then someone tweets about it. And then it goes to a think tank that's associated with those people. And then it actually ends up on the Indian foreign minister's desk. So there's like an entire ecosystem. And for people to believe that, oh, I'm not Muslim, or I'm not Kashmiri, or I'm not Dalit, or I'm not this, I'm not that, to believe that they're not going to be targeted is also a, a falsity, which also in the Israeli case shows to be true, right? If you are anti-Zionist Jew, you're also going to be on someone's list if you say the wrong thing. So no one is safe, which is ultimately, I think, the answer is that no one, none of us are safe. And I think we have to consider that continuously if we are going to build those solidarities and these partnerships and stop thinking, you know, primarily about ourselves. Well, thank you both so much for being with me today on On The Nose. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Again, Aparna's piece is The Hindu Nationalists Using the Pro-Israel Playbook, and you can find it at jewishcurrents.org, or you can subscribe to read it in print. And Azad Issa's book is Hostile Homelands, out from Pluto Press. And I encourage you to keep tuning in for On the Nose. Subscribe and, and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. <laughs>